Coming up on this episode of the Every Breath Counts podcast. COVID Center of Excellence uh, would be a center that first off treats COVID patients at home to prevent hospitalization and death. What do you think the biggest lesson we're going to learn from this is? If you were to just take a guess 10 years from now, and we look back, what's going to be the big takeaway from all this? When we do this post-mortem, we're going to say, Harvard, where were you? Mayo Clinic, where were you? Got all this talent. Really, you couldn't come up with anything to save these patients? Welcome to the Every Breath Counts podcast. I'm Ryan Sheckle, health enthusiast, amateur ultra runner, and award-winning business consultant. And each week, I interview experts and leaders about their stories and strategies on how to optimize your mind, your body, your career, and your life so that you can make every breath count. Thank you for investing your time in the show and yourself. Now let's get started. Isaac Asimov said, the saddest aspect of life right now is that science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. And Albert Einstein said, if we knew what it was we were doing, it would not be called research, would it? My guest today is Dr. Peter McCullough. Dr. McCullough is not just a board-certified cardiologist and internist, but the most published cardiologist in the history of the field. He spearheaded the COVID early treatment movement, researching and treating patients with a combination of drugs such as hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Due to the success of his research, he was asked to testify to Congress regarding treatment options to end the COVID pandemic. His work has become more mainstream after appearing on the popular Joe Rogan podcast, opening up an important dialogue about vaccine efficacy, natural immunity, and early treatment protocols. In this episode, I asked Dr. McCullough why so many doctors and scientists draw different conclusions from the same data, what nutraceuticals we could have at home to be prepared when encountering COVID, where he believes our major academic medical institutions dropped the ball, what to consider regarding vaccinating children, and even who he'd want to see play him in a movie. If you believe that open discussion about important topics will lead to more critical thinking and want to hear about how some healthcare heroes are interpreting the science of COVID-19, this episode is for you. These conversations are the cornerstone of freedom of speech. I encourage you to share this with anyone interested in the science and treatment of COVID. And if this is your first time here, welcome and thank you for tuning in. Be sure to click the subscribe button to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. If when you're done listening, you found this episode inspiring, educational, or entertaining, I would be grateful if you gave us a rating and review wherever you listen and tag me on Instagram at Every Breath Counts Podcast with any feedback. Without further ado, Dr. Peter McCullough. Dr. McCullough, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, You've been all over the place recently. Uh, You've been treating COVID patients. You've been on the news. You have a podcast of your own called The McCullough Report. Uh, You were even on a little-known podcast that not many people have heard of called The Joe Rogan Experience. But... um, I think that you have a very important voice uh, surrounding COVID right now. And one of the things that is difficult in this day and age, and I'm going to use a football reference here, you're out in Texas, you should appreciate it, is the armchair quarterback. And I think a lot of people have very strong opinions uh, that aren't necessarily in the game. So why do you have a strong opinion regarding COVID-19 and why should people be listening to it? I've been treating COVID-19 from the very beginning, and I came from a position where I was you know, very academically accomplished. I'm the most published person in my field uh, in the world in history. I have over 650 publications in the peer-reviewed literature, and I have over 52 now on COVID-19. I'm a board-certified internist and cardiologist. I see patients in my practice every week. I split my time between practice and scholarship, and I'm an author. I'm an editor. I am a clinical investigator. I'm the president of the Cardiorenal Society of America. I'm the overall editor of a brand new textbook called Cardiorenal Medicine. And um, I published the longstanding chapter in the Bible of Cardiology, Brunwell's Book of Cardiology. Two years ago, I was the endowed lecturer at Harvard. We, we knew a couple things about COVID-19. We knew that there were three phases of the illness, viral replication, cytokines, and then thrombosis or blood clotting. So no single drug is going to handle that. We needed drugs in combination. We had to start early that the average person 
two weeks before they come in the hospital. We can't wait till they get in the hospital uh, to start treatment. We must start early. And then we knew that uh, there was insufficient time for, I'm a cardiologist, large trials between 20 to 40,000 patients, prospective randomized placebo-controlled trial. To this day, we don't have anything close to that in terms of a, a treatment trial. And so, and we don't have any multi-drug trials whatsoever. So we step forward, organizations support early treatment, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, of which I'm a member, uh, as well as the Truth for Health Foundation, American Frontline Doctors, the Frontline Critical Care Consortium. And while I was working with my teams, uh, U.S. academics and Italian academics, uh, Didier Rialt in France, Pierre Corey, Paul America working the Frontline Critical Care Consortium, all independently came up with the same conclusion, that COVID-19 was treated and we used a multi-drug approach. I think there's still a lot of fear surrounding this disease. Um, and I think a lot of the fear comes from some of the inconsistencies in the interpretation of the data. So as a scientist, as a doctor, I'm curious to understand, why do multiple doctors interpret data differently? Because you may be saying the interpretation of maybe the CDC data or, or numerous studies uh, means one thing, whereas a doctor with a varying opinion may think that it means something else. How can doctors come to different conclusions from one set of data? Call statistical inference is people draw different inferences. That's the reason why it's best just to show and let people come up with their own conclusions. We could show a statistic like, <clears throat> let's say, a rate of vaccine injury to the heart and give a number of 21,000 cases, which is actually the, the, the tally in the U.S. data system. And I would conclude that's large. You know, that's large, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, that we only have a couple hundred cases per year. Uh, but someone else could look at that and say, no, it's uh, it's it, that's uh, rare. That's rare. Mm -hmm. And so, in fact, people who advise on the vaccines consistently say that that that's rare. So people come up with different conclusions, looking at the same data. I think it's just better to show the data. And so I don't present information or misinformation. I just show the data and let people decide. Is is that consensus? Is twenty one thousand incidences of myocarditis uh, from vaccine uh, published? The total number of cases of myocarditis as of December thirty first, twenty twenty one, is twenty three thousand seven hundred and thirteen. So to me, that's a large number. There should only be a couple hundred kids with myocarditis per year. About four cases per million um, young people. Uh, if we have got 70 million kids, there ought to be <clears throat> 20, 280 cases of myocarditis. So 23,000 is an astronomical number. And we know from papers from the CDC original description to Hogue and recently Trong, uh, authors that have written on this, that the majority are getting hospitalized. This is a huge thing to take get a normal state of health, mm. give them a vaccine, and then put them in the hospital with heart damage. Yeah, this is interesting, and I think it's it's important to recognize too that, and and I would imagine I, I don't want to be wrong in this, but myocarditis is likely uh, a byproduct of COVID as well, correct? Or is it a higher incidence with vaccination, or how does that work? You know, there's some confusion there. The Chinese were correct originally that for sick adults in the hospital in the ICU. Uh, there is a rate of having a blood test called troponin, which is a test for heart injury, turn positive. And okay. uh, that rate's about 50% for those who are in the ICU. But it's no different for pneumococcal pneumonia or gram-negative sepsis. So anybody sick enough to be in the ICU will have some micro heart injury as determined by the cardiac troponin. The Chinese called that cardiac injury for lack of uh, another term. Uh, but it doesn't meet the definition of myocarditis, where there's chest pain, uh, EKG changes and, and really obvious heart damage. So, Joy and colleagues, uh, was the paper was published in Journal of American Cardiology Imaging, showed there was no credible evidence that the virus causes myocarditis. I think in sick ICU patients, there could be this troponin pattern, but it doesn't cause myocarditis like the vaccines do. The vaccines cause uh, cases where there's uh, dramatic EKG changes, very high cardiac troponins. Uh, chest pain, signs and symptoms of heart failure. Uh, evidence in the Trong study published from the University of Utah at Salt Lake, uh, you know, the vast majority had evidence of 
a really dramatic heart injury by MRI. Uh, it's completely different. So we can't compare the vaccines to the respiratory illness. It's, it's a night and day. It's really two different clinical uh, scenarios. Well, since we started jumping into this, I'd like to just to continue with it. And uh, Dr. Robert Malone uh, kind of followed you on the Joe Rogan podcast, and he spoke not only to the myocarditis, but he also spoke to uh, potential issues with women in terms of fertility, ovaries. Um, is this something that that you're familiar with, that you've seen that is... Uh, Obviously, it hasn't been studied. Um, so why are why is there concern regarding vaccines in children, specifically young females? Well, the FDA and the pharmaceutical manufacturers agreed that uh, young women and women at childbearing potential that couldn't guarantee contraceptives and uh, pregnant women in no way should receive the vaccine. So they're excluded from the clinical trials program. Now, the CDC and the FDA are running the public program. And they're permitting these people to receive the vaccine. And that's a huge mistake. It's mm. a huge mistake. Pregnant women, women at childbearing potential under no circumstances should receive the vaccine. Why? It's because, A, they were excluded from the trial. So we don't know if it's safe at all. And then, B, we know the vaccines have a dangerous mechanism of action. They, they install genetic material in the human body that produces the dangerous spike protein. That's the spine on the ball of the virus. The spike protein is damaging, damages uh, neurologic tissue, the heart, uh, the bone marrow. It gets into reproductive organs like the ovary, uh, steroid hormone producing organs like the adrenal gland. This is the last thing you'd want if you're a young woman. Uh, it's really disturbing. The vaccines are loaded on lipid nanoparticles. So they go throughout the entire body. Uh, the Japanese had Pfizer do a biodistribution study of the lipid nanoparticles in animals. And they show that these particles hyperconcentrate in the ovaries as they wash out of other organs. This last thing you want to have is a vaccine installing genetic material into ovarian cells and tissue. <clears throat> it looks like that's happening uh, now. And it's, I think it's, it's very tractable that, that, uh, that this is a, a bad idea for women. It's certainly something, you know, again, no, no safety data from clinical trials. The ovaries are delicate organs. The woman has to rely on them for egg production and hormonal production. There's just no way a young woman would ever want to have a vaccine go to her ovaries like this and install genetic material for the spike protein. Yeah. So let's talk more about the efficacy of these vaccines, because it's my understanding that while you're far more likely to be hospitalized uh, and ultimately die from COVID at an older age, it seems as though the hospitalizations and the deaths are significantly lower for younger folks. Um, so how should we be thinking about the safety of these vaccines in terms of risk management? Um, is the risk worth the reward at different ages or different age groups in terms of whether you are more likely to be hospitalized and die or less likely and how to manage that risk of potential danger from vaccination itself? The Cleveland Clinic has a calculator. You can type in your age and your medical problems and you can figure out your risk of hospitalization and death. And I've done that. And I can tell you in general, it's age over 50 where the risk of hospitalization and death, you know, get over 1%. So even people under age 50, the vast majority of them, we never even treat for COVID-19. So if we don't treat patients for COVID-19, we certainly wouldn't vaccinate anybody under age 50 for COVID-19. We, we don't even treat it at that age group because it's so mild. So uh, it's very amenable to, to stratification. The people who really get sick are people over 65 and our, our CDC has told us recently that 75% of people have four or more comorbidities, diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, cancers. Uh, we know that 90% have at least one comorbidity. And so, you know, it wouldn't be anybody uh, that we would vaccinate. It would only be those really at the highest risk. I, I've always said a vaccine program, maybe for nursing home residents, nursing home workers, something like this. But this idea of mass vaccinating the entire population is uh, it's basically just a very bad idea and it's backfired horribly. It's, it's, it's led to worsening the pandemic and it's caused a lot of hardship. 
I want to I want to understand why it's backfired, but I also am curious um, because I, I do feel like most people are concerned about helping each other, right? And I know that that was the talking point initially. It's don't get vaccinated for yourself if you're young. Get vaccinated so you're not spreading viral load to the people who are vulnerable. Um, do vaccines actually reduce the ability to spread the disease? Um, and are you doing a disservice to the community if you aren't vaccinated? We never vaccinate to protect other people. So when you took your childhood vaccines, they were to protect you. you know, I'm a doctor. I'm a cardiologist. I, I've taken the hepatitis B vaccine. It's to protect me against a needle stick uh, and contracting hepatitis B from a patient. I mean, I, I take the flu vaccine each year. It's to protect me against influenza if I'm managing a patient in the ER and comes in from a nursing home and they've got a fever, they may have influenza. So we never vaccinate to protect other people. So that, that, that was the first kind of false contention mm -hmm. that we put out there, that it wasn't about you, you're protecting uh, somebody else. And we learned early on uh, this summer, there was a wedding in Houston and they were fully vaccinated. They all got COVID and a paper was generated by Fair and Hope and colleagues, clearly showing people were passing it to one another. Then a paper from Oxford in Ho Chi Minh City by Chow and colleagues showing fully vaccinated people were spreading it to each other. And then our CDC director came out on TV and said, listen, the vaccines don't stop transmission. They, they simply don't. Uh, and then a paper this fall by Singarajam and colleagues uh, from in Post and Lancet showed that 39% of all spread in that study that did a lot of uh, careful uh, contact tracing, 39% of all spread was fully vaccinated to fully vaccinated. So it was clear you don't take a vaccine to protect anybody else. In fact, you take a vaccine, you're going to spread the virus to other people just as readily as anybody else. Mm. Um, one of the things that I was talking to people about uh, earlier this week was just trying to understand who's coming into the hospital. And I feel like the data is somewhat unclear on this. Um but how many people that are being admitted to the hospital with COVID symptoms or being treated with COVID uh, are vaccinated versus unvaccinated? Are you aware of those statistics? Well, there's always a flow of patients to the hospital. Just at our break, I mm -hmm. took a hospital admission, uh, you know, a patient who's had a kidney transplant. She has heart failure and atrial fibrillation. Now, uh, she may or may not be tested for COVID. But if she tests positive for COVID, even though she's admitted for other problems, I'm sure she'll be labeled as a COVID admission. So data are emerging. We saw reports out of New York and elsewhere uh, really exposing this. And our CDC director got on TV and said this. It's easily half of all the COVID admissions have really nothing to do with COVID. They're just testing positive, whether it be false positive or we know if someone has COVID, by the way, the virus is in the body now for a long period of time. So people can intermittently test positive for a very long period of time. So uh, because of excessive testing, probably the, the hospitalization data are skewed. They're, they're inflated by easily 50% from what they should be. And then the hospital data are unreliable because there's differential testing. So, for instance, many hospitals have a protocol where the unvaccinated get extra tests, but the vaccinated don't undergo any testing. So I don't think, uh, you know, outside of a randomized trial, we can't conclude that the vaccines reduce hospitalization. We just, it's just, the, the hospitalization as an outcome is just too biased. So we have to look at uh, mortality data. So what do we have in terms of mortality of people really admitted to the hospital really because of COVID-19. Uh, there's a paper published in JAMA this fall by 1040 and colleagues from the IV network. It's a very good research network. About 45% of the cases had Delta, 55% were legacy variants. And of those who got admitted, they really had COVID. The vaccines did protect against progression of illness in the hospital, 59% risk reduction. And then mortality for the fully vaccinated was between 6 and 7%. And for the unvaccinated, it was between 8 9%. So it was not statistically significantly different, but there was numerically something that trended in favor of the vaccines. And then a paper by Cohn and colleagues from the VA, over 700,000 cases, not randomized, but they looked at survival curves over time. Those COVID positive over age 65, there was a 12 point difference in those survival curves uh, over time. However, under age 65, there was only a 1% difference in survival. When I showed that to Joe Rogan, he looked at it, his eyes got big, and 
He said, that's, that's not very much. And I said, yeah, that's pretty much what you get from the vaccines, not, not very much. So the vac- vaccines are modestly effective uh, about having, they have some mortality reduction. It's not nearly as big as early treatment. I mean, we, we put our early treatment programs together. They're far more impactful than the vaccines. Yeah. Let, let's get to those early treatment. But before we get to that, um, you did say that, that mass vaccination could have been counterproductive. What did you mean by that? Well, we had data coming out of Arcevito in, uh, in Santiago, Chile, reporting on Peru, and then from Neeson and colleagues from Mayo Clinic and a company in Boston, which is doing great work, a company called Inference. And they had published this and, and found the same thing. Once you get to 25% of the, the population vaccinated, you create enough of a population. It's called a non-sterilizing uh, ecological um, constraint. And so because of that, the, the virus will find ways of, uh, as it's replicating, it'll find ways to beat the vaccine. And that's exactly what happened with uh, Delta. So w- once the Delta virus figured out how to beat the vaccines, we went all the way up to 100% Delta. We never, before Delta, before the vaccines, we never had 100% of any strain. We always had a mix of strains. Suddenly Delta was going wild. And that was a long, hard outbreak. Delta affected younger people, it lasted longer, it was more invasive. Delta was very hard. That was basically brought on by the vaccines. And now we have data from JAMA uh, published by uh, uh, Young Zhu and colleagues showing that the vaccines only had about 20% vaccine efficacy against Delta. They were pretty much worthless against the Delta variant. Any vaccine that falls below 50% protection is worthless. And that was, you know, that's, that's in JAMA and that's all the vaccines and they were terrible against Delta. And now with Omicron, we have data with uh, from Hansen and colleagues and from the UK showing that the vaccines basically are just obsolete against uh, against Omicron. It's it's been thought that uh, mass vaccination could ultimately contribute to like a superbug that is immune to the vaccines. Is that something that's that's even uh, val- valuable insight, or is that not anything that could happen? Well, Delta clearly had achieved antigenic escape and was largely resistant to the vaccines, and so has uh, Omicron. Uh, but I wouldn't characterize them as superbugs. They've just been hyperdominant strains. People are worried about a more virulent strain somehow being, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, arisen from evolutionary pressures where there would be, once we have the vaccine, see, the problem with the vaccinated is they have very narrow immunity against only one protein. The virus has a couple dozen proteins. So when you just have very narrow immunity against one protein, that, that, that virus is going to basically figure out how to beat the vaccine. The, the vaccines are very incomplete and they're kind of poorly conceived as an immunologic tool. So the virus you know, basically made, made lunch meat out of the vaccines within a few months. I mean, they were released in December and we had the Delta outbreak starting by, by May. So it didn't take long. Yeah, this is a point of controversy because I think there's a lot of there's been data that supports that the vaccines uh, have have better protection against the virus, which I, I haven't quite been able to pinpoint that. I've, I've heard it. I don't know if it's rumor. Um, but what are your thoughts on natural immunity versus versus uh, vaccine? And I know that I was reading on the CDC's website or maybe it was Johns Hopkins saying that uh, natural immunity plus vaccine plus booster is significantly superior to just natural um, uh, natural protection. All we know there is, uh, you know, through the wild type alpha, beta, gamma, and delta <coughs> variants, we had up to 140 studies supporting natural immunity as basically being robust, complete, and durable. And all that was broken when the Omicron variant came and it basically broke through natural immunity. Mm. Uh, it broke through vaccine immunity and then uh, clearly affected those. You know, there's a small number of, group of, of people now who are still COVID susceptible, meaning uh, they, they don't have natural immunity and they haven't taken a vaccine. But that's a very small number uh, because we know that in the United States, 146 million people uh, have already had COVID. That's what our CDC says. Our CDC also says 200 million people have already taken the vaccine. Well, we, are, we only have 330 million people in the United States. So there's actually very few unvaccinated susceptible people around. I mean, that Venn diagram is, is pretty small. So you'll find some unvaccinated people. They're pretty rare out there. 
What's happened though is there's been some studies that have been very methodologically flawed and then are invalid. And our CDC uh, uh, published one of them. It was from Kentucky. And what they did is uh, they had data on test positivity and they had people who were vaccinated who uh, didn't take, uh, uh, who are COVID recovered and took the vaccine and those who were COVID recovered and didn't take the vaccine. And what the Kentucky study said is, oh, looky here, those who are unvaccinated have <coughs> had more positive tests, but nobody, there was no adjudication of who was sick or who is not sick. And it turns mm. out that the unvaccinated take a lot more COVID tests because they have to, because uh, the CDC has all these suggestions at hospitals and clinics and other places do a lot of extra testing in the unvaccinated, but they don't do any testing in the vaccinated. So that Kentucky paper uh, which concluded that somehow vaccine plus natural immunity is better than natural immunity alone. That was just basically a, a fraudulent paper. It's just representing testing bias because uh, testing is not equally applied among the vaccinated and unvaccinated. Same reason why the hospitalization data are not valid either. Yeah. Are you aware of how these these numbers are um, added? Because I, I am aware that if you are required to be vaccinated for work, in a number of different industries, and I've spoken to people in a couple of different industries, if uh, you can test out, but you have to have um, a test from a facility, I'm not sure the specific facilities, um, every single week oftentimes to continue working, and it has to be a negative test. So for example, if someone uh, that's working in a hospital um, that is testing out for whatever exemption uh, they see fit, they may have 52 tests a year if they're not vaccinated uh, just to continue working without being symptomatic, just just to ensure that they could show up at work. Are those included in a lot of these numbers or, or how, how does that work? I think that probably are. And I can tell you that that asymptomatic testing is not cleared by the FDA. That's off the rails. That's not FDA cleared to do that. The CDC doesn't say to do that. And the World Health Organization doesn't support doing that at all. So that's completely unsupported employer um, overreach in terms of asymptomatic testing. No one should have an asymptomatic test. These tests are only designed to work as a diagnostic aid in, in the setting of someone being sick with suspected COVID-19. Yeah. One of the things that you did mention on uh, the Rogan podcast was asymptomatic spread. Uh, is it is it consensus? Because I feel like there's there's some controversy over whether you can spread COVID asymptomatically. And I do know that it's sometimes maybe pre-symptomatically. Um, but where do we get into that kind of gray area? You know, if COVID-19 could be spread asymptomatically, it'd be the first disease in the history of mankind that was spread asymptomatically. So, so when, when, when it was presupposed that it spread asymptomatically, that was a false assumption that, that was basically, in a sense, just in somebody's imagination. I'm not sure whoever put that out there as a notion, but there were papers published suggesting that 30 to 50% of the spread by modeling was by asymptomatic spread. And it was a model generated at University of Washington. You know, that's one of my alma maters. I trained there in mm -hmm. medicine. It's called the Murray model. It was off by a mile because it was assuming there was asymptomatic spread. It was just a false assumption. Everything spreads symptomatically. There is no such thing as asymptomatic spread. It doesn't exist. So, so there are two good studies that basically disproved asymptomatic spread, one by cow, one by Madewell. They looked and looked and looked and finally found a few people who actually had the virus in their nose. They had no symptoms and they can't spread it. So what Joe Rogan said is, you know, Joe Rogan said, well, you know, I was playing pool with a guy and he started to feel sick and then we all got COVID. It was like, well, you know, that's called symptomatic spread. So, so the idea is once somebody starts to get symptoms, and you know what I'm talking about, when you start to feel like you're getting a sore throat or a nasal congestion, as soon as you start to feel symptoms, then that's the point in time you can spread. When you're perfectly well and you don't have a single symptom whatsoever, you can't spread the virus. Yeah. What would you say to um, the idea that 
potentially the restrictions that are being placed on people um, to to maybe return to work, return to school with a negative COVID test is causing people to potentially uh, show up places symptomatic because they don't want to have to take time off. They're afraid that, oh, I've got a little bit of a cold or a sniffle. I'm going to have to take 10 days off. I may, you know, I, I may have to take pay for a COVID test. Um, and then they show up and they spread COVID. Do you think it'd be more beneficial to say, look, if you're sick, stay home. Uh, we don't need a negative COVID test, but when you're non-symptomatic, come back. You know, if we just had smart uh, stay-at-home policies and we had uh, flexible work and school policies where someone got sick, they could remove themselves from work or school, we'd be fine. Uh, I mean, we'd be absolutely fine. And we can save all that money on tests. Uh, you know, it's just it's just a matter of common sense. We need that 1950s, 1960s common sense. Uh, in order to reduce spread of the virus. All this testing is not creating any reassurances. You know, I saw memos uh, today from California where there's a there's a healthcare worker shortage that basically say, well, if you test COVID positive, come to work anyway. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, it's like, it, it's like the system is completely broken down now that, uh, you know, why bother then? Uh, you're right. I, I think it's all should be symptom driven. If someone's got severe symptoms, you don't want someone showing up to work uh, with a fever and highly symptomatic. Uh, when I had COVID-19 in October of 2020, I called employee health at this big health system. I said, what do I do? I'm a doctor. I got COVID. Do, do I have to get a test before I go back to work? And she says, no. He goes, those tests stay positive for months afterwards. <laughs> and Omicron is such a short, brief, mild syndrome. If in the last two days there's no fever and you just have a little congestion or what have you, you can go back to work. That makes a lot of sense. And that gets me to treatment options because you pioneered a lot of treatment options early on when when it was really unknown what this disease was and what it was going to do to the country, what it was going to do to the world, how bad it was going to be for people. Um, and, and, you know, you, you actually coined it the McCullough Protocol. And uh, can you tell me about the McCullough Protocol uh, in terms of what you were working on, why it worked, um, and then also what we should be doing now? Those are great questions. You know, I, I didn't copyright it, but uh, Ben Marble at My Free Doctor felt like so many people were using the original idea that uh, he, he actually applied for the copyright, the McCullough Protocol. But I work with great people uh, around the United States as well as uh, in, uh, in Italy for the very first version of this. And second version, I had 57 authors and I had really some of the biggest early treatment doctors in the country. So I had people a ton of experience in doing this. And it basically uh, says that at baseline, we want to do risk stratification. We want to identify who's at risk. We're not going to treat everybody. In fact, young mm. people, we typically don't treat. Then we want to do things, just smart things. We want to get fresh air. Someone's you know, just acutely ill with COVID. We want to air out the house, reduce the inoculum. Uh, we want to do contact tracing, make sure we haven't spread it to anybody. And then we want to start nasal washes. This is really important. We got to, the virus is in the nasal cavity. You can take pills all day long, but you, it's not going to work unless you wash the nasal cavity. So the nasal cavity is washed with dilute povidone iodine or betadine, and that's typically in a ten to one dilution. So a half teaspoon and one point five cc's of uh, of water, like say a half teaspoon of shot glass, is perfect. Then get a spray bottle, a little bulb syringe, go over the sink. Sniff it, you know, square it up your nose, sniff it back, and then spit it out. You got to get it all the way back. And you can do that about every four hours. It markedly reduces the viral load. Randomized trial by Chowdhury and colleagues, uh, 606 patients, showed dramatic reductions in uh, the time, <laughs> excuse me, the time to, um, to uh, reducing the positivity in the PCR, drop the PCR down right away. And uh, so it re reduces the infectivity period greatly. And then it dramatically reduces hospitalization and death. In fact, that nasal wash is far better than the vaccine in terms of anything it does. And it's simple and it's cheap. And if someone can't tolerate iodine, I've got someone right now, they just can't tolerate iodine and having an allergy, we'll use dilute hydrogen peroxide. It's about a three to one dilution there. And uh, it can be nebulized up the nose or you can do a wash. It's a little bit more irritating, but it definitely works in terms of reducing the viral load. It's the most important thing. And, so uh, so it 
was that was that working when and I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh early on, Alpha, Delta, the the initial um COVID diseases, they were replicating um further down the respiratory track or, or deeper in yes. the the lung. So is it as effective for those or is it significantly more effective now with Omicron? And, and should we be even looking at it more seriously? You know, Ryan, that's very perceptive. Uh, with the wild type alpha and beta, uh, you're right. They were more kind of pulmonary invasive and, and we were actually at much lower uh, viral loads in the nose. Now we'll never know because the randomized trials weren't done in that era, but, but clearly in 2001, we had the Chaudhary trial come in and others come in. Uh, and so we infer with Delta, Delta is at least a thousand fold higher viral load in the nose. And now Omicron, which is out, out replicating even Delta by 70 fold. Now we really do have the problem in the sinuses that we can attack. So I think it's very perceptive. We can't go back and figure it out, but we would start with anybody. If we had a fresh Omicron case right in front of us, we'd start with the nasal washes. And then we would get into over-the-counter nutraceuticals. And there'd be about five things I'd want to see people take. So zinc, 50 milligrams a day, which is a polymerase inhibitor. Uh, we'd want to take vitamin uh, D, 5,000 international units, prevention, 20,000 units a day treatment. Uh, vitamin C, 3,000 milligrams a day treatment. Quercetin, 500 milligrams a day prevention, 500 milligrams a day, twice a day treatment. And then a fifth uh, over-the-counter product, which is famotidine or pepsin, 80 milligrams a day. So that home treatment kit ought to include either peroxide or povidone iodine wash, and then zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, quercetin, and famotidine. If you had that, that survival kit, you could buy that for probably $20 to $40 at the store. You're in good shape for COVID. We're trying to encourage patients not to be surprised. So many patients get a diagnosis of COVID. They call and say, I got COVID. I said, well, do you have anything to do at home? No, I don't. So now they need to go out and contaminate everybody at CVS to go buy stuff. I mean, people need to have a little preparation here. I mean, everyone's going to get it. They ought to have a preparation. So we would do that layer. For someone your age, that's all we would do, honestly. And then you'd you'd basically ride it out of quarantine period. Uh, it would be 10 days. And then the last two days, no symptoms, go back to work. Or now the new modified five days, last two days, no fever, go back to work. Now, if there's severe symptoms or you're older and you have medical problems, then we would get into treatment. <coughs> I would say that people over age 65, we would do um, monoclonal antibodies. And what we know mm -hmm. now with Omicron is we would use sotirivimab, which uh, the GSK monoclonal antibodies designed to handle these resistant strains, very effective. In the clinical trials, it reduced hospitalization death by 85%. It can be used all the way down to age 12 in the FAQ for the EUA. So, so Terrifma have a terrific product. GSK, it was, it was EUA approved in May of 2021. Everyone should demand that their centers have plenty of GSK product around. So, so we're talking about, um, we're talking about treatment options. And the one thing that, that was really interesting about what you said is that a lot of the treatment options are over the counter. You could, got, you could get them at CVS, at Walgreens, at, at any of these natural stores, these nutraceuticals. I'm curious to understand because zinc, vitamin C, vitamin D, uh, even even the nasal washes. Um, like I, I've had sinus surgery. I've had to use a neti pot and I've done that with saline, right? That's really accessible. It's something that you could do on your own. You don't need a nurse. Just squirt it in your nose, let it go through all your sinus cavities and spit it out uh, your mouth. And it's a very, you, you've, first of all, you never felt so cleaned out after you do something like that. But these are really easy to do. Is there benefit to doing these prophylactically? It probably is. Um, you know, there's been a couple of prophylactic studies the effect size is modest. I think it was less than 50% protection, but it's still worth doing. You can supercharge a saline neti pot by putting a few drops of Lugol's iodine in it, which is concentrated iodine. Or you can use the dilute betadine. I have dilute betadine here as a spray. Right now, I just have a head cold. I don't have a COVID. As far as I know, I've already had the alpha variant. Now I had Omicron a few weeks ago. I think I just have a cold now. Uh, but I'm using the, uh, the iodine spray. I'm doing that about every four hours and just sniffing it back and spraying out. And it's really, you know, cutting down that congestion and I'll, I'll breeze through this. Uh, no problem. 
So I'm curious to understand because you were uh, on on the early hydroxychloroquine train, and you received a lot of pushback on on treatment, um, at least nationally. And, and maybe you didn't receive the pushback. I'll let you I'll let you respond to that. Um, but hydroxychloroquine uh, is incredibly controversial in terms of a treatment option for COVID. Um, so there's two questions that I have regarding this. Um, the first question is why. Uh, and the second question is, why was there pushback on a on a uh, protocol with hydroxychloroquine? However, we are looking at um, emergency use uh, for for new Merck and Pfizer uh, treatment options. Well, I was working my way through the algorithm. <clears throat> if we can't get the monoclonal antibodies, then it's reasonable to take an oral antiviral. And so with hydroxychloroquine, that was the first drug data, and we had data back from 2006. We knew it dropped viral replication. We also knew it was, it was a trustworthy anti-inflammatory, it's an anti-malarial. So it made a lot of sense. So even though people say hydroxychloroquine is controversial, the one thing I'd say is it's definitely the most well-studied product in COVID-19. There's over 300 supportive studies. And what we've learned is it doesn't have much impact late. So if someone's about ready to go on the ventilator, I wouldn't use it there. But it does have a big impact early in the hospital and even a bigger impact early as an outpatient. Um, its overall effect size, I mean, I've published a meta-analysis with uh, Surgeon General now of Florida, Joe Ladepo. It's about a 25% uh, impact, which is not zero, but it's not it's not great, but 25%. Ivermectin was the next drug to come along. That created probably more controversy because it was more effective. It was probably about 70% effective. And well, that's an oral drug. We have to dose it weight-based. But for both of those drugs, there was just an unbelievable set of reactions. For hydroxychloroquine, for instance, in Australia, they made it basically illegal for a doctor to use hydroxychloroquine to help a, a COVID patient. They put a doctor in jail if he did it. They Man. took hydroxychloroquine in France. It was over the counter and they made a prescription. They made it hard to give patients. Uh, in the United States, they, they took hydroxychloroquine, they stockpiled it. Then they put an emergency use authoriz authorization up for just in the hospital. It didn't work in the hospital. <clears throat> and then they said overall, FDA said, don't use hydroxychloroquine at all. So, I mean, it was just, you know, it's just, it couldn't be worse in terms of uh, uh, a situation. Hydroxychloroquine should have been uh, free to use all the way through the, the pandemic. There's a large uh, study by Mokhtari and colleagues from Iran, 28,000 people, those who they select for hydroxychloroquine, about 25% of their adult population, uh, they have a dramatic reduction in hospitalization and death. So hydroxychloroquine clearly has a, a beneficial effect. So that was hydroxychloroquine. Uh, now with uh, ivermectin, in the second year, we had data as antiparasitic drug is used for, for scabies and other illnesses. Uh, there, about a 70% effect size, over 60 supportive studies. Here, uh, the American Medical Association launched a campaign to abolish the use of ivermectin, to abolish the use. Uh, our FDA and NIH came out and they said not only should ivermectin not be used, but they said it was only horse paste. They said that uh, it, there was no evidence for ivermectin, uh, yet there was all these studies. Uh, so the misinformation that came out from uh, the NIH, the FDA, the, 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 you know, the campaign launched by the AMA. The AMA is a political action committee. They don't have any role to, to have a campaign against a drug. Never seen that before. And they're completely out of their, out of their element in doing that. So the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons shot back a, a legal letter to the AMA saying cease and desist. They were basically starting a misinformation campaign against ivermectin. Ivermectin's first line in Mexico. It really crushed the, the epidemic out curve in Mexico City, South America, India. First line in Japan. I mean, there's nothing wrong with ivermectin. It's perfectly fine. Yeah. Can you can you speak to this as a doctor? Because one of the things that was frustrating to me all along is this idea that, um, and I know they said, oh, it's a horse pill, it's a horse paste. Yes, there are drugs and there are uh, devices. There's a lot of things that's used in medicine that's off label for the FDA. So. Why is it okay for a doctor to use? Because I understand how this works, kind of working on the inside in healthcare a little bit. And I understand that there are a lot of drugs, a lot of devices used off-label from the FDA based on the discretion of the doctors. 
Well, the FDA has clear guidance. In fact, the FDA put out a statement to patients in 2018 that's why is your doctor using a drug off label? It says because your doctor <clears throat> is filling an unmet need. Mm-hmm. That uh, the original advertising label of drug is pretty irrelevant to its future uses. <clears throat> Nobody can anticipate. No one could have known when they did the advertising label 65 years ago for hydroxychloroquine that it would be used for COVID-19. No one could have anticipated this. So doctors use drugs off-label all the time. That's considered a clinically appropriate, medically necessary, clinically indicated off-label use of drugs. And that's what we do. So we do that for hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. The other ones that come up, I mean, we do it for prednisone, budesonide, doxycycline, azithromycin, colchicine. Uh, those are our standard drugs. We actually, in COVID-19, we use apixaban, um, uh, rivaroxaban, dabigatran, uh, edoxaban. We use uh, enoxaparin. So we have a whole toolbox of drugs we use off-label, and we should. There are no advertising labels for COVID-19 right now. It's too early of an illness. There's not a single on-label drug. So everything's going to be off-label. What are you most excited about right now in terms of, and I'm going to leave that very open-ended, treatment, uh, anything. What are you most excited about with, with all this right now? I'm pretty high on the Pfizer drug. I think uh, the Pfizer drug is a, is a communist-like three inhibitor combined with the ritonavir, an older protease inhibitor. I think it offers uh, great promise for patients with COVID-19. Now, it won't be a standalone drug, but in the clinical trials, the effect size was pretty large for, uh, for that drug, the drug combination, about 85% reductions in hospitalizations and death. And even though it's a low uh, event point uh, in both uh, low events in both groups, I, I'm very uh, high on it. And and I can tell you that um, I think that drug, in combination with the other things we do, steroids and and, and anticoagulants, is going to be just fine. The Merck drug, I think, is going to be okay. It's about a thirty percent uh, effect size, thirty percent benefit for molnupiravir. That's a that's a um, polymerase inhibitor. It's just slow to work. It's similar to favipiravir, which we've been uh, communicating with the Japanese and Russians on since the beginning. They have favi. It doesn't really work that well. But I think the Pfizer drug, I'm pretty high on that. And then going forward, I think the current sets of vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, and then AstraZeneca, uh, and I throw in Sinovac elsewhere, I think they should just pause all those vaccines. They're basically obsolete at this point in time. They didn't work. Uh, they're not, they didn't cover Delta. Uh, they're not covering Omicron at all. People are transmitting it to each other. Uh, it's not stopping COVID at all. So I would stop all the vaccines and drop all the mandates. And, and what looks encouraging are the antigen-based vaccines. The, the leading one is Novavax. Novavax was every bit as good as Pfizer and Moderna in the clinical trials. They have longer duration of follow-up. It's a purified antigen-based vaccine. It's just five micrograms of the spike protein. And maybe uh, maybe that could be a booster for our seniors uh, and nursing home workers. But I, I wouldn't vaccinate anybody outside of just senior citizens and nursing home workers. I think it's been a giant, in a sense, a giant global disaster to try to vaccinate the world. Interesting. What do you think the biggest lesson we're going to learn from this is? If you were to just take a guess 10 years from now and we look back, even 20 years, 30 years from now, like what's going to be the big takeaway from all this? The big takeaway, I think, is it's going to be uh, get teams of doctors installed in Washington. If I would have been installed on a team, uh, you know, I presented to the country, we should have had four teams, four, four pillars. Reduce the spread of illness. Turns out the most important thing is uh, nasal and oral washes. You know, trying to reduce the spread with masks or social distancing or hand sanitizer doesn't solve the problem. The problem is the virus is in the nasal cavity. You have to wash it there. Uh, the second pillar would be early treatment. We should have had a, a team on early treatment, monthly reviews of new treatment regimens. Pillar number three would be in-hospital treatment. We clearly need uh, advances in the hospital, and we need teams of doctors. Do you know, sadly, no single hospital in the United States claims to be a center of excellence for COVID-19. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Do you think there'll be billboards up where they say, send your COVID patients here that they're so good in COVID? No hospital. There's no bravado. 
None of the you, hospitals are proud about their COVID care. I mean, it's you know, crazy. what's interesting about that doctor is I, I work as a consultant in healthcare and every single hospital and surgery center wants to be a center of excellence for something. They don't care what it, they just want to be a center of excellence. So it's interesting you say that because that is, it's, it's such a, uh, hot topic and key word that everyone wants to label and put it over their door center surgical center of excellence or, or whatever it may be. So that's interesting. You say that. Well, you're right. I'm a cardiologist, boy, all these, all these hospitals want to beat their chest about being the best open heart program or, uh, you know, they want to be best in cardiovascular care. I'm in Texas. So we have MD Anderson. They're the best in cancer care worldwide. Every, you know, heart disease and cancer, everybody wants to be the best. Suddenly we have COVID we got the number one reason why people are in the hospital and nobody wants to be the best. I mean, it's just, it's really, it's really shameful. Uh, Mayo Clinic, Harvard, Emory, University of Michigan, and none of them, they're out of ammo. They, they can't, they can't even come up with one idea to be, uh, become better than the other. I mean, it's really, it's really shameful. I think, I think they're going to do a walk of shame. When we do this post-mortem, we're going to say, Harvard, where were you? Mayo Clinic, where were you? Got all this talent. Really? You couldn't come up with anything to save these patients? I'm curious, if you were czar of the Center of Excellence Committee, uh, what would it take for someone that claims to be a COVID Center of Excellence? What would what would the pillars of that center be that you would say, yes, you, you, Hospital ABC, are a Center of Excellence with COVID? Well, you only finish with the fourth pillar for the country, though. The fourth pillar sure, would have sure. been vaccination. I think vaccination does play a role. But I would have had teams working all those mm. pillars, uh, contagion control, early treatment, late treatment, and vaccination. I would have had monthly reports for the nation, monthly reports. You know, we've gone months and months now with the vaccine program, no report. You know, our CDC and FDA have not told us, how are the vaccines doing? What's a good vaccine? What's not a good vaccine? You know, the vaccine is doing anything positive. No one's telling us anything. They're simply saying, take the vaccine. They're safe and effective. When people say, wait a minute, you got, you got to prove that. So if a COVID center of excellence uh, would be a center that first off treats COVID patients at home to prevent hospitalization and death. So that means they would actually have to have a treatment program. So when someone gets a COVID-19 test, they would get risk stratified and then go home with the treatment kit or go get the prescriptions. Do you know to this day, these centers, Harvard, Mayo Clinic, all these, they don't have a home treatment program. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, it's stunning. Again, they're out of ideas. I wouldn't even ask them to think of an idea. They could just use the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons Home Treatment Guide and just prescribe the drugs. That would be fine with me. But they would have to get off the dime and start treating patients with COVID-19. And then on the, they would have to do what's called medication reconciliation, when a patient gets sick and they come in the hospital, the drugs they are as an outpatient should be carried into the hospital. So patients should come in, you know, already on doses of prednisone and on doses of colchicine and ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. These drugs should be continued through the continuum of care. But instead, most patients come to the hospital getting no treatment. Even if they got some early treatment, it's stripped away from them and they don't get a milligram more. Then they come in the hospital and they get some draconian treatment, they get six milligrams of dexamethasone, which is a, a, a steroid that is not mainline. It's not conventional. It's not considered an optimal dose at all. Uh, they don't receive solumedrol or prednisone, which is our standard. And then they get remdesivir, which is this intravenous polymerase inhibitor. Uh, it's, it's got a very slow mechanism of action. By that time, there's not much uh, viral replication. It's got kidney and liver toxicity that take it out of use in so many cases. Convalescent plasma data have been mixed by barcetinamib, tocilizumab, data are mixed. I mean, the hospital is just, honestly, it's a dismal place because of the lack of innovation. If they actually did medication reconciliation and carried the patients through on these, you know, really high quality outpatient treatment protocols, uh, they'd be better off. And if they wanted to do more innovative things, they could do it in the hospital. But right now, the hospitals are very strict about this. They say, listen, we only follow the hospital protocol. So a recent paper by Burns and colleagues from the Academy Group in JAMA reviewed these hospital protocols, and they concluded that uh, 18% of the time the protocols uh, uh, had no um, uh, they had no um, 
description of the risks and benefits of the drugs. They're very poor quality. 9% of them, uh, only 9% of them had uh, any commitment to ongoing review or expert review. So the conclusion by Burns was that the, the protocols that these hospitals are clinging onto so tightly and they're not deviating from, her conclusion was they're not trustworthy. They're actually not a trustworthy approach. No wonder Americans are infuri infuriated at in-hospital care with COVID-19. It's not trustworthy. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I love, I love the concept of, of identifying what it would take to be a center of excellence, because I think it gives something to strive for. And I, I think that's truly important. And um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, Dr. McCullough. I really appreciate you hopping on this call. And I like to end the uh, podcast with three questions that I ask everybody. But before I do that, I'm curious if someone wants to learn more from you, if they want to get information from you, if they want to learn about COVID, if they're looking for treatment options, uh, how can they reach out to you? Go to America Out Loud uh, Talk Radio, the McCullough Report. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough Report. I'd issue a report weekly to the country. I've been doing this for every week through the pandemic through 2021. And uh, you get a lot of updates and you get a lot of very good information. I inter interview uh, experts all over the world. One of the things we never see on mainstream media is we never see international collaboration. Never. So, uh, you know, you'd never see our NIH directors uh, invite on experts from around the world because, you know, it's a worldwide pandemic, but uh, they seem to have no interest in learning uh, from anybody else. So I do that. Uh, also go to the, uh, for physicians and healthcare workers, go to the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons for all the CME review studies, uh, review slides. All my slides are available there. So uh, it's all uh, for, you to, for you to use. And then for uh, patients, Patients commonly want to know who are the doctors that are treating COVID-19, where are the treatment networks, and where are the protocols, and how to do the oral nasal washes. Go to Truth for Health Foundation, truthforhealth.org, and download the home treatment protocol and the, and the listing of physicians. And patients really need to activate their physicians to start treating COVID-19. I don't know what's going to happen now when the Pfizer and Merck drugs hit. Will primary care doctors for the first time start treating COVID-19? I really wonder. It's going to be an interesting time. I mean, they, they won't have any excuse. They may have said before, well, said, I'm gun shy about using hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, but now, now they have something just laid out for them. They'll have the Pfizer pill. Uh, you know, the question is, will they use the Pfizer pill and, you know, a little prednisone and aspirin and get the patient out of a jam? Or are they going to continue to deny treatment? We'll find out. Well, that'll be interesting to see. And it'll be nice if we could have... Um... A, a crew or a bunch of physicians that are willing to to treat so that we can prevent hospitalizations because I think that's the goal. I think that nobody wants to see hospitalizations. I think nobody wants to see death. And ultimately, it would be it would be unfortunate if we neglected some of these treatment options, uh, which I don't think we will. I'm I'm optimistic for the future of this country, for the world, this pandemic, and and I'm hopeful. I know that that the term getting back to normal um, is kind of relative at this point. And I know that there is going to be a new normal, but I'm optimistic and I'm hopeful that we will um, begin to see uh, what we loved about um, our freedoms from years ago. So I, I, I don't know I if you agree. Say I agree with that. That early treatment is a pathway of getting back to normal. The other thing people really want to see is they want to see the vaccines dropped. Yeah. All the mandates dropped and the vaccines have made people so uncomfortable. They don't want them. People haven't taken a vaccine since April. Now it's forced on them uh, with the Omicron breaking through all the vaccines. All the vaccinated people are getting COVID anyway. They've really lost faith in the vaccines. So I think the smartest thing to do is the Biden administration come out, just drop the vaccine mandates right now. Supreme Court doesn't have to decide. And then go ahead and, and pull the drugs off the market so we can find out uh, where they went wrong. Awesome. Well, last three questions of the podcast, and I love these questions. Dr. McCullough, what is the most impactful book that you've ever read? Boy, that is a good one. Um, you know, there's a book, uh, and I believe the first author is uh, Guterres, and it's called, uh, it's called Deep Survival. And uh, it has to do with how people survive, like after a plane crash and they're up in the mountains and the snow. And what have you. And I, I thought I, I should go look that up one for you. That that's a really good one. But I, I it's impactful because it basically teaches one how to um manage themselves 
in uh, in, in a disaster type of setting, and, and how you know it would uh, teach one how to actually take an overwhelming task and then become successful because you divide it up into a, 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 you know divisible units. So let's see what the name of it is here. I'm just looking it up. So yeah, it sounds it sounds really interesting, and yeah, it sounds I mean, applicable. Yeah, uh, the one I have here is until the end of fight for survival. I think that's pretty similar. Uh, but anyhow, that I, I would say that one uh, for enjoyment. Uh, I, I like all the Cormac McCarthy series. So okay, um, you know everything uh, in there. You know about the boys on the border of Mexico. And uh, um, in the United States back in the, you know, in the 1940s and 50s. Nice. Um, And I think I heard that you don't drink, but this is a really cool question. And if you could have a drink with anyone, past or present, who would it be? What would you drink and why? Past or present. Wow. Yeah, you're right. I I don't drink, but, um, you know, there's certainly a lot of interesting people out there. Uh, one person I had dinner with one time in a group setting, but I would have loved to have dinner with him for a long time because he had just done so many things in his life. He's passed away, unfortunately. It's Larry King. Mm. So Larry King was, he was a lot of fun. I learned a lot just from my brief interaction from him, but I, I think I would have liked to enjoy more time with him. And the last question is really meaningful to me. And, and just to give you a little bit of background on myself is I have cystic fibrosis. I was diagnosed at 18 years old and I was told I'd live to be 30 years old. And like you said, with this book about confronting death and um, unachievable tasks or overwhelming facing overwhelming tasks, I believe that you have to make every breath count in your life, which is why I've uh, titled my podcast, The Every Breath Counts Podcast. And one of the ways that I make every breath count in my life is taking time to speak to people like you to really educate myself. And I, I enjoy educating myself. I enjoy having these conversations. I enjoy sharing them with the world. But Dr. McCullough, how do you make every breath count in your life? Oh, that's a great question. I want to correct my first answer. I was able to find it while you were talking about cystic fibrosis. The, the book I recommend is called Deep Survival. Deep survival. Yeah. Deep survival. Who lives, who dies and why? And it's Lawrence Gonzalez. It was Hispanic name. Okay. Uh, I recommend that uh, book a lot. You're right. Cause I think we're, um, we're assigned with these uh, things in life. Like you got assigned with cystic fibrosis. You didn't choose that. It just, in a sense, it was by assignment. I was speaking at a symposium uh, one time. There was a young guy about your age. He was one of the presenters really impressed with him. And he was a type one diabetic and he was telling his story. He had ultimately run marathons and done all kinds of things. And he, he said that, listen, becoming a type one diabetic and having to have an insulin pump and doing all this as a young person, he said, it made me a better person. He said, it made Mm -hmm. me a person that I'd pay more attention to things. I became more assiduous. I became more uh, focused and detailed. I, I was able to multitask things. And because it just made me better. And I said, wow, that is an incredible, incredible uh, insight. And, uh, you know, all of us are going to develop medical problems with 100%. You may have cystic fibrosis now, but, you know, I can have something uh, later. My my wife's father's downstairs. He's 98. He's in a wheelchair. So he's, you know, he would, today he was trying to learn how to navigate a wheelchair. Listen, it's all going to happen to us. So it's a matter of how uh, one puts that all together. Um, I can tell you from the very beginning of COVID-19, I knew that I was going to play a big role. Uh, Somehow I knew, and I've played probably one of the biggest roles of any human being right now in the world in COVID-19. This is a catastrophic illness. It has caused catastrophic suffering. And it took the best and the brightest and the most courageous to step forward and do something about it. So I'm proud to say I'm in a small group of people who are doing that. Uh, the sad part about this is that group of people is not our government leaders. Mm-hmm. It's not even our leaders of healthcare right now. It's really a, a band of of independent physicians and scientists who, you know, have a lot of bravado and a lot of skill. But most of us, honestly, in the in the treatment doctors group, we're the top people in our classes. We're not from the bottom of the class. Uh, those people right now are are in the major medical centers, not treating patients. It's really kind of the top shelf, top gun. Remember Tom Cruise in that movie? Top oh, gun. Yeah. You got the top gun doctors 
who are taking care of COVID right now. And the whole world knows that. You know, my phone is blowing up every day because patients say, listen, I want Dr. McCullough for a reason. So that's great. So you bring up Top Gun. That's funny. If someone was to play you in a movie, who would it be? You know, it's going to happen. Believe it or not. There's oh, really? Famous writer in town, John Leake. John already has a couple of bestsellers. He writes uh, uh, kind of a criminal mystery uh, books. And he's in town to actually write a book about my, you know, my role in the, in the pandemic. And which would almost certainly would become a movie. Um, I got to tell you, I'm going to take the most recent uh, James Bond, um, the the British actor. What's is it Daniel Craig? Daniel Craig. Okay. I'll take, I'll take Daniel Craig. It, you know, I'll need to do a few push-ups to to catch up to him. But uh, I'd love to see Daniel Craig play me. He'd be, it'd be great. Great. Well, when when they touch on this interview uh, in that movie, I, I guess I'll take I don't know Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> oh, you mean great, real handsome guy. Yeah, you can do it. So good. Awesome. Well, Dr. McCullough, thank you so much for your time. And and also, look, thank you for your courage. Thank you for stepping up and and providing some information and insight that is relevant and needed in a time where uh, it's it's not easy to disseminate good information. It's not easy to understand um, who is doing the work to interpret the data the way it should be interpreted. And look, you're a lot smarter than me. I don't know. I'm trusting that that your experience uh, has led you to these conclusions, and I think it's courageous to to take a step out and and do things that maybe go against the norm a little bit. So thank you, um, guys. Go out, look them up. All the links will be in the show notes. Thanks for so much for tuning in. Make the best of your day. Make the best of your week. Uh, go out. Take care of yourself. Get one of these survival kits that he talks about. Have it in your house and be ready to treat this because everyone's going to get it. Make the most of your life and make every breath count. Hey, y'all. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I can't articulate how grateful I am for you. If this episode was inspiring, motivating, or educational, it would mean the world to me if you hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen and left a positive five-star review. And if you want to learn about new episodes as they come out, check out my Instagram at Every Breath Counts Podcast and sign up for my newsletter at everybreathcountspodcast.com. Have a great day and make every breath count. Let's talk about Buzzsprout. Have you thought about starting a podcast? Did you know that 41% of the US population listens to podcasts monthly? And podcast listeners are 68% more likely to be postgraduates. How about this? 12% of all podcast listeners make between seventy-five dollars and $100,000 annually. Whether podcasting is the secret ingredient your business marketing has been missing, or you have a message that you just need to share with the world, the best place to host your podcast is Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout has a ton of how-to guides and support videos to help you get started. And they make it easy to get listed on every major listening platform like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and so much more. So join me and over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to share your message with the world. Buzzsprout is offering a $20 Amazon gift card for listeners of this show. Simply follow the link in the show notes and start your podcast journey. I cannot wait to hear what you have to share with the world.